0: everyone, and welcome to the sixth episode of the Resilient Leadership Learning from Crisis podcast. I'm Seth Schultz, the Executive Director of the Resilient Shift. On today's episode, Peter Willis and I will discuss the latest round of insights on leadership during a crisis, distilled from interviews conducted with the same group of 12 senior decision makers in city government and large global organizations who are navigating their organization's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Hi, Peter. Welcome back to another week of our podcast.
1: Hi, Seth. How are you doing?
0: Not too bad. I, I enjoyed a, uh, a long weekend here. It was Memorial Day in the U.S. It was a little bit of a strange Memorial Day. It's usually the unofficial kickoff the summer uh, in the United States. And lots of trips and barbecues and visits to beaches. And most of that did not happen. It was a nice break, but a strange one. <laughs> you could say that about everything now, that it's... Nice, but strange. Indeed, and uh, and some fatigue. You know, I think there's some fatigue setting in here in terms of the sheltering in place and how long this is la- going to last. And now with the weather warmer, and people are craving that that social engagement uh, and opportunities, at least in the northern hemisphere. But uh, again, I'm really excited to talk to you about the conversations you've been having over the last week to find out. You know where this is all sitting, and how everybody else is is feeling with this, particularly around one topic. Because I think you and I are talking to each other every week, but from really opposite ends of the planet. And what we're seeing now is that, of course, as we know, the northern hemisphere has been hit first. Um, but now we're starting to see this pandemic spread to Latin America and Africa, which we've been dreading, but uh, we knew it was gonna gonna happen. And now that it is, so I'm, I'm curious where the conversations have have gotten to and whether whether that's emerging in what you've been hearing.
1: Well, uh, yes, it has from a geographical point of view there's very definitely I'm talking to uh, one of our participants in Denmark. I think I mentioned uh, in the last podcast where they're opening up in in rather an easy way. And we are definitely heading down into a difficult patch um, in Brazil and here in South Africa and in India, no question. But the the thing that's really been bubbling up for me in some of these conversations in the last week has been around the impact of COVID-19 on inequality. And I think it's not only been an impact, but it's been a, a light shone into the profound levels of inequality that... I think everybody's aware of. There's absolutely nothing newsworthy about the fact that there are some very rich people and then there are some rich people and then there are some not so rich people and then there are a lot of poor people. But it's just striking how as every new level of this crisis lands and people say, oh, so this is what happens next with a global pandemic of this kind. It's repeating this pattern that those who can who have the fewest options, get the worst hit. And I think up in your country, you're getting, as in my old country in the UK, you're getting the much higher numbers of people from poorer backgrounds, um, certain ethnic backgrounds. And down here, it's the people in the shanty towns and the favelas who are much less able to self-isolate or to medicate and even to build the sort of health you need if you're going to, if your system is going to fight off this virus. So all of that is kind of, none of that is really new, but it's it's really becoming quite stark here in the developing world. And just to give you an idea, in Cape Town, we are, I'm talking to the chief resilience officer, as you know, Craig Kesson on a weekly basis. And he's been saying to me for weeks now that we know that the peak is some way off and it's still going to come and it's going to be quite severe. So that's our, our little background, if you like, but there was some a very interesting story that came out of Brazil, uh, Adriana, in Salvador, where she was saying the federal government did a, a smart thing that they realized there were a whole lot of people that they needed to get their support packages to this sort of financial support packages, but they were not on the voters' roll, which is the sort of pivotal institution that if you're not on the voter's roll then you're very hard to access government benefits and so on so they created an app and everybody's got a cell phone so they managed to get it out and about and people signed up and they were amazed at how many people they didn't know existed who came out of the woodwork saying yes please I'd like my support package and here's my you know here's how you can reach me here's my cell phone number and I thought well there's a wonderful illustration of how invisible Certain types and classes of people are to government, even municipal governments who are supposed to be so much closer. So I thought that was particularly interesting. And then another story came out of Oakland, California, where uh, the chief resilience officer, Alex, was telling me, and I thought I was very inspired by this, that she and a whole bunch of other people across the city government and into uh, civil society and even business were coming together to think through over the next six months. They've given themselves six months to really come up with a proper strategy. Because their citizens of color are suffering disproportionately and are having more difficulty getting testing, et cetera, et cetera, than the white citizens and the middle-class citizens. They've said, how are we going to fix this for the future so that this never happens again? I mean, they've really set the bar super high and their ambition accordingly high. And they had their first meeting and she said it was fantastic to get the spirit and the sense of contribution of best thinking uh, so we, we're going to be watching that in the next weeks.
0: Fascinating. Yeah, so it's it's interesting. the juxtaposition is countries in the North are trying to get back to the now normal, as as we've been saying. At the same time, in the Global South, it's just beginning to, to really hit and strike them. And I also love the two examples that you just gave from Adrian and Alex in Brazil and California, respectively, on different issues, but similar. Uh, in terms of who this is hitting and where, fascinating how in some cases it's like polar opposites, and in others it's exactly the same. It just strikes me that we keep finding this about this particular pandemic: is inconsistencies, and then the shocking, surprising issues that are exactly the same, um, and how they keep kind of reappearing in ways that we we just don't anticipate.
1: Yeah. And I would love to see more examples of what Oakland is coming up with in the sense that, um, you know, to use Churchill's great saying about uh, never waste a good crisis, that um, if there is one scourge of modern humanity, it's not really even modern, it goes back all the way, of inequality. If we were to be able to come out, even if it was only in a few cities here and there, a few communities, a few countries perhaps, to say, okay, that wasn't so good. We're going to see how we structurally reduce that gap so that um, more people are included. Or to use this phrase that one or two of our participants have used spontaneously in conversations, we mustn't leave anyone behind. In fact, Anne from SAP, she made the point that she's been locked down in Denmark, her home, and she's made the point that if you leave people behind, in other words, you simply don't take sufficient care of pop- certain populations because they're too poor too too remote, and so on. That's where your virus will hang out and come back and bite you just when you've relaxed in your middle class or wealthy suburb and so on or nation and And I thought that's so true that the discipline of a pandemic is that it says, "You show me where your weaknesses are. I'll go and live there while you congratulate yourself on." Tidying up the easy bits, and then I'll come back for you.
0: Right? No, in indeed. Just before I, I want to pick up on that because I, I think this is an amazing point. It's leaving no one behind, and you know we really are all in this together. But I've just noticed that you've mentioned a few of uh, the interviewees by name and location, which is you know a little different than what we've done before. So I just wanted to highlight that it's kind of an exciting point in the interviews and the discussions we've been doing. We're coming up pretty close to the, the midway point in this. And if I'm not mistaken, Peter, the, the group that we've been engaging with and that you've been interviewing has also come together as a group and is getting more comfortable and okay with having a more publicly visible role in this project. Is that right? And is that why we're able to kind of mention some of them by name now?
1: Thank you, Seth. You're, you're spot on. That is true. Uh, they're, they're all uh, really leaning in towards this purpose of this project. Yes, 11 out of our 12 have said that they are happy and people can see this. Our listeners can see this on the website. Further down on the webpage, we've got their profiles. Uh, there is there is one who would love to be, but his organization has taken a more cautious view. And so we respect that, obviously. It's very nice to have them out in the open. They are amazing people. So I'm delighted to be able to name them on our
0: podcast. No, me too. It's, it, it is exciting. And, and I remember when we you know, dreamt all this up just a, a few short months ago. We didn't know how that would evolve. And and because of what we were doing and asking, we knew we needed to take a more conservative approach. But we had held out hope that there would be the ability and the enthusiasm and the, the leadership um, to be more visible. And that it has, in fact, happened. So I'm absolutely delighted that our listeners are going to get to see and understand um, these individuals because they are extraordinary, as you mentioned. But picking up on, on one of the points that you had just made, you know, the, the leaving no one behind, the point that you're talking, um, referring to in terms of Alex and Oakland, fascinating that one, as you mentioned, and you're interested in seeing what comes out of that. So, so am I, but I mean, what really strikes me about that is the challenges associated with this pandemic are coming so fast and furious. And we've talked about this at length, you know, over our conversations, the difficulty of dealing with that and prioritizing you know having an open minded approach in terms of rethinking what you did and didn't know and how to apply that the idea of being able to pick up something in this moment and recognize it as a great learning opportunity like you just said is happening in Oakland in terms of let's not make sure let's make sure this never happens again and let's be self cognizant enough to recognize that and capture that information and data for our own learning is really exceptional and this idea of you know, what, what are the early signals, you know, that might be coming in a little bit weak right now, but how do you identify those, those weaker early signals amongst all the noise right now to really identify massive learning opportunities and or situations where you can have a big transformative shift into the future?
1: Well, yeah, the, the, you're opening up this, this larger question of what are we learning that will really help us not to stumble next time something comparable happens. Now, by comparable, it may not be a, a pandemic. It may be another major global crisis. Goodness knows we've got options. Specifically list, um, connected to this pandemic, one of our participants, Honey Pham, made a very interesting observation to me, which was that we've all become experts in PPE supply chains because that's been a big news item. And he sort of stood back further from that and he said, do you know what? All supply chains have been um, massively disrupted by the lockdowns and the various other measures that have drawn the economy to a virtual standstill. But the distinction that we now have to make going forward, and this is really your sort of point about preparing for for the next crisis and being better at it, is to distinguish between those vital, critical Supply chains which bring life-supporting materials and infrastructure into play when they're needed, versus the supply chains for gadgets and books and nice food that you can buy online and so on. Those are what I call those commercial. He's saying the ones that are critical infrastructure supply chains, critical material supply chains. They have to be managed by governments as a priority, even though they might be sort of actually. Operationalized by the private sector. They cannot be left to markets. Do you remember we talked in one of the first podcasts about that extraordinary report from Tom Lewis in the States about how he would place an order for PPE as part of his business, and then you'd go to the supplier the next day to say, right, where do we pay for it? And so on. And they say, Oh, sorry, it's been, I've sold it to someone who offered a better price. Right. Competitive bidding for things of that vital nature that must never happen again and so so i I really like that observation that if you want to give a job to a bunch of um civil servants across the world after this it is to distinguish which supply chains must not be allowed to be run only on market principles yeah i thought that was quite interesting but then to pick up on your your point about the um the weak signals i i really love this Interestingly, I think pretty much all our uh, private sector participants have got operations in China as part of their organization. And so in every case, at a different point in their conversations, they've said, well, of course, we had early warning because our office in China was talking to us back in China.
0: Yeah, hey, this is serious. Yeah.
1: But the... You could argue, you might argue, that President Trump and um, Prime Minister Johnson have got highly paid diplomats, and not to mention spies, in those countries, uh, like China and so on, and that they were also being talked to. The difference is what you do with those weak early signals. And in every case of the ones, I, I just remember talking to Peter Chamley of, of Arab Australasia about this, uh, this last week. And he was saying that he was invited onto an an Arab board, global board meeting in January. Uh, Was it late January or early? Uh, Very, very beginning of February, I think. He said that they were being spoken to there by one of um, Britain's top epidemiologists. And he basically said, This thing is out. You need to know this thing is out. And Peter said that that was all his board colleagues needed to hear. They agreed. From that moment on, we are taking this thing seriously. It could go very, very badly. It certainly could go global. It looks as if it will. And so they that's why they started getting ready to work from home in his area a couple of weeks before national governments required it. So the lesson that we took out of that in our, in our conversation was there's something in the culture of an organization, and it's also down to leadership, that pays attention To weak signals through the lens of care. In other words, if your lens is filled with the ambition for growth, let's say, or in political terms, you're watching the next election or you're watching the Brexit drama unfolding, you are not paying attention through the lens of care and sort of risk mitigation to these early signals. And and all the companies in in our uh, group, I'm happy to say, are showing up and have shown up as having this ethos of care that we put our people and the continuance of our, the integrity of our organization right at the top of our attention agenda. So I, I thought that was really, really valuable insight.
0: Yeah, I wasn't even, that isn't even where I was kind of going with a question. You know, I was thinking more about once once you're in the crisis and it's so all-encompassing and crazy and noisy how do you then find the weak signal but what you're talking about is yeah, how do you find the weak signal and it to help prevent the crisis yeah even further upstream from the process really interesting stuff i had yeah i hadn't even thought about that and i love the analogy about companies versus countries and the intel and what they did with it and and how and why i mean really good analogy there comparison
1: i'm sorry i missed your point um, and it's a, an interesting one which you can perhaps talk about another time, but in the middle of the crisis, there are also all kinds of weak signals arriving about the future. Yeah, And where might we tumble out of this crisis and land? And that's certainly something that my conversationalists are talking about. But as I say, it's another another whole
0: area. Yeah, well, it, yeah, indeed, I'd love to come back to that because it is it is a really it's a challenge on how we do that, but it's so important, and I and I think the example that you gave again of Alex in California is touching upon that a little bit, but kind of riffing off of the where we were what we were just talking about, and the analogy that you gave between picking up early signals and the governance of that, the ethos of the culture of the organizations. Again, I think we touched on this in a previous conversation, but I've been struck by how much leading companies are doing um, in terms of the response, the knowledge that they're gaining, uh, the rapidity with which they're taking action, the transparency with which they're doing this. How, you know, and I asked you this before, I think, how is the collaboration evolving between different levels of government, between companies and cities? And then going back to earlier this conversation, the global north, global south, uh, where the pandemic is now emerging or slowing down in different areas. Uh, which, you know, requires a, a totally different flow and share of information. How is this emerging now or evolving, Peter? Look, that's a big question,
1: Seth. And, and I, <laughs> yeah, I fair,
0: say, fair. <laughs> all, these are always big
1: questions. But it comes through absolutely um, relentlessly in the um, the warp and weft of our conversations that collaboration at close quarters, that's inside organizations, between organisations, as you were saying, between business and and their governments, there's some fantastic uh, examples here in my country, South Africa, and I'm hearing of them in uh, Brazil. Adriana is really quite astonished because she she has grown up knowing that Brazil has a reputation internally as a highly competitive society. Yeah, uh, which I found interesting.
0: I've I've done work in Brazil myself, and I I can attest that that is okay. the case.
1: <laughs> oh, okay, well there you go. I I've never been there, so. So she has been astonished at the degree to which mayors of a whole host of different cities are collaborating um, with huge effect. And businesses have really come to the party. And interestingly, business in Brazil doesn't have a strong philanthropic tradition, you know, which contrasts, for example, with your country, where there is a very well-established tradition. And I thought that well, it really struck her, and I can see why. And if you think about it, Crises which really threaten our existential crises, which this clearly is, you would be surprised if they didn't bring us closer together. But as Alex in Oakland revealed, and we talked about this, this in our last conversation, you can't take it for granted because some institutional habits of not collaborating run deep. But this time around, actually, it was funny, this time, this last week, Alex reported, and it was so nice to hear, that she and one of two of her colleagues in the city of Oakland have, have actually managed to start building a real rapprochement with the county in order to get some important testing sites set up and so on. And the way they've done it primarily is by letting go of the need to to claim it for themselves. And like that, this was our idea. I said, no, let it be your idea. It's great.
0: Oh, interesting. Let's just do
1: it. So very fundamental principle of if you really want something done, as she said, you don't need to. Um, collect the praise for it and, and it sounds as though they, they are actually collaborating in a in an interesting way now, which is a good story
0: yeah, well, it really is and and it's interesting. we started off talking kind of about leaving no one behind we're all, all in this together we we kind of moved into in the midst of all of this, how do you pick out the really important stuff how how can you learn now we've kind of moved into kind of insights in terms of collaboration, which is so important and it is I do kind of see like a new leveling effect in terms of collaborations and everybody pitching in and then this idea that it doesn't matter how it gets done we just need it to get done and everybody is chipping in in different and unique ways leadership is being exhibited by people that you wouldn't expect it from and or exactly who you would expect it from in in different doses but i love this idea that you're just kind of letting go you need to kind of metaphorically and physically let go. Let go on our preconceived notions of governance, uh, of responsibility, and recognize that we all have a shared responsibility in, in how we get this done and how we all need to open up our minds, adapt to the current situation and find our way through it. It's, I love that phrase, Peter, letting go. and I can see how difficult it is, but also from the examples you've given, what an important message that is.
1: Yeah, I, I would I would just say on that that I'm, I'm recalling a conversation I had with Barbara Humpton, the CEO of Siemens USA, where she reached a point where she's been a very um, sort of visible leader from the front since the beginning of this. But in the last couple of weeks, she's been saying it's become really clear to her that she's now able to and, and needs to pull back, allow her teams which have flourished in this sort of very collaborative, uh, to use her term, we're, we're all in the foxhole together. Spirit, and so she's now starting to ask herself. So I wonder what is my my next role in this unfolding thing? Because it clearly the the situation is now calling for something different from me. And we literally left it hanging there as a question. So I'm fascinated to see what she finds. Because she's a an extremely live wire. She won't put her feet up and say, Well, good, the job's done. So I'm very interested to see what leadership is for her in this next phase.
0: Now, likewise, and with a theme of, of letting go, I'm also really delighted that we find ourselves halfway through this project and we're able to let go of some of the anonymous nature of this project so we can kind of really allow the leadership and the insights and the collaboration that we've been fostering through this project to date shine and allow others to to see and understand it more deeply as a result of that transparency. So I'm delighted that we're we're at this stage, Peter, and extremely happy and enlightened myself in terms of uh, where we've gotten to so far. So thanks again for all, all the work and please pass on the entire team's appreciation to all the participants when you speak to them this week.
1: <laughs> I will, with pleasure. Thank you so much, Seth, and uh, you have a good week. I'll look forward to talking to you soon.
0: Likewise, Peter. Thanks again. Thank you, as always, for joining Peter and me on the Resilient Leadership Podcast. I hope you'll join us for next week. We have a special edition marking the halfway point of this project, where we'll be doing a roundup of the first eight weeks of interviews, pulling out some of the highlights and things that we've learned. You can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. You can also listen to previous episodes of our podcast and access more insights on resilient leadership on our project page. Over the next few weeks, we'll also be adding some new types of content emerging from our weekly interviews, so make sure to check back in regularly. This is Seth Schultz signing off on behalf of the project team and the Resilient Shift. Thank you once again for listening. See you next week.